Let's take our Bibles together and turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 19. And let's turn together to Matthew's Gospel chapter 19. And we'll begin where we introduced this new section of Scripture in Matthew's Gospel last Lord's Day evening together. And we stopped halfway through our opening section of this chapter. So Matthew chapter 19, and we'll be looking this evening at verses 1 down through verse 10. As we come to this passage, we see that this is a transitional passage in God's Word. As Matthew records for us, that it is not by accident that immediately following Jesus' teaching on forgiveness, kingdom life for His disciples, that Matthew staggers and layers, highlights his teaching, the Lord's teaching on divorce, marriage, and singleness. As we pointed out last week, there's perhaps no other place in a believer's life where these things will be tested, the need for long-suffering and forgiveness. And as we come to think about our marriages and singleness and living the gospel out, one thing we as believers quickly come to find is that if forgiveness, the long-suffering of Christ in us is not practiced, then any relationship, most importantly marriage, will quickly begin to erode. One commentator has said, what is a marriage but two long-suffering, really good for forgivers? Well, as we look into God's Word, we, we find that God's grace sustains and enables all of these things. And I will not belabor and go on and on, but to, to not recognize that the, state, that the fact that the state of marriage in America today is in dire straits is really to be blind. In fact, some statistics say is that half of all marriages end in divorce, and I believe those rates, those numbers are even higher than that. But one thing I know for sure is that there's probably not one family here that has not been affected in some way by it. Well, but there's more than marriage and divorce here in this passage. There's also, at the tail end of this passage, the final few verses, the question of eunuchs, and for a broader point of conversation, singleness, and we'll, we'll cover that as we get to it. This is a transitional passage, and Matthew records for us the testing that the Pharisees bring to Jesus on this issue. Last week, we introduced, number one, the probing question found in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees also came to Jesus. They came testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? We pointed out last week that they came to the right person, but this is not a, a sincere coming to Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit, using Matthew, records for us, they came testing him. This it gives to us the desire of their heart with a, an intent to expose. We talked about last week how they took Deuteronomy chapter 24 and were interpreting Moses' permission, the permitting of Moses as a command for God's people, how they knew that there were two main camps of the day, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai, who had their interpretations. And it is believed that the goal here by asking Jesus this question is to put him in a tricky situation to whereby he will alienate half of the hearers there, those who follow Rabbi Hillel or those who follow Rabbi Shammai. Notice that their question is, here, the grounds for divorce for anything. The idea is, is of a word for anything or something, a whim of a spouse, particularly the emphasis would be on the man 
as he had more rights during this day and age. Some rabbis and commentators would say simply, if a man did not like his wife's meal or preparation or, or cooking, it would be something as flippant or as silly as that that he could divorce her. That was the teaching of Rabbi Hillel for any reason. It was also the mainline view of the day. And as we think about today, no-fault divorce and the way marriage is treated, you could just simply say this, humanistic teaching and philosophy, the language that we have used for so many years, follow your heart, has been the root cause of destruction for, for relationships, marriages, and all across the board. And I could spend a lot of my time giving you those illustrations, but I'm going to speak to an audience that I think you know those things. This is the day and age that we live, and I don't want to waste precious time giving you examples from the newspaper, from the media. This is such a serious issue and also one that hits close to home for, for many of us in our families. We understand that. So let's look into what God's Word says. Number one, not only the probing question, but secondly, the plan for marriage. Verses 4 through 6, he answered them and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. Notice they come to him with a question about divorce, and Jesus in his answer wants to talk about marriage. He doesn't go to Deuteronomy 24 and their misinterpretation of it. He doesn't go to Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai and get into the arguments about who is, has the correct interpretation of the day. Neither of them have the correct interpretation of the day. He goes all the way back to Genesis. Now that is so interesting. and we, we pointed this out last week and I just want to touch on it again. Many who don't believe that Jesus addresses the issues of uh, sexuality and our modern day issues, the battlefronts that we're fighting with all of the alphabet mafia and all those types of things. He does. And he does it by going back to Genesis. And just this succinct answer in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus encompasses so many things evolution and creation, the authority of not only marriage, but the authority of origins are addressed here. There is such a density of truth here in verses 4 through 6 that we're just barely touching. The surface. There are many Christians today who would not touch this with a 10-foot pole. You say, touch what? Well, we'll touch Genesis. They would act like it's something that is up for grabs or something that we can agree to disagree on or that type of thing. But I would just tell you, Jesus here with his response affirms the authority of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, a literal rendering of it. And this answer, he does so much from an apologetic standpoint for us as his disciples. But he goes all the way back to not Moses, but God's intention. God's creative design and his placing of marriage. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage. And I'll just say this. Following our Lord's example, even when we as a church or in our families or people come to us for counsel, many times the origin of the question asked is, what is permissive grounds for divorce? And we need to follow Jesus' example in simply the intent and the bent of his heart and say, what is marriage? Let's do all that we can to uphold the biblical understanding of marriage, its importance and its gravitas, what God has ordained and instituted. So his response begins 
with a question. He gives a question to a question. Notice we pointed this out. He says simply, have you not read? Do you not know the word of God? Do you not know the law of God? And we would say the same thing to ourselves today. And yet, to some, this may sound sarcastic and jabbing. We don't mean it to be, but have you not read? Many who would wear a what would Jesus do bracelet truly don't know what Jesus did. They would say, listen, we, we want to take on the ethics of Jesus, but here by practice and example, they would not necessarily own what Jesus models for his disciples. Here we find in Jesus' answer that he rests upon God's word. He is the word by going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So secondly, the plan for marriage. In his answer, we find that there are only two sexes, male and female. Notice verse 4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? So we learn by God's design, by Jesus' affirmation, that biblical marriage involves one naturally born male and one naturally born female. No more plurals in that sense, or poly, you follow the logic there, and no less. And I say that to some of you say, what do you mean by that? Well, we live in a day and age of insanity where people are marrying themselves or they're marrying inanimate objects. And so the law recognizes both ends, pluses and minuses, as legitimate marriages. And friends, I'm just here to tell you that is not the case before the eyes of the Lord. This language of being joined together describes the bonds of marriage. It's a covenant bond made before God and man. Marriage is a covenant bond made before God and man and sealed with physical intimacy. That's what this language of joined together means. So this is what the Lord means here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and begin a new thing. He shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus here in his answer affirms not only biblical marriage, but teaches us so much about the issues that we see in our day and age today. This is God's design for marriage then and now. Verse 6, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is that new thing of coming together in a new bond, a new home, one flesh. Literally, in this bond, in this covenant, God sees a man and woman in this way when they come together in the same way he viewed Adam and Eve, creating Eve out of the side of Adam. Literally, they were one flesh. So, verse 6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What he's saying is this, I command that men, I command that man not separate this. It's not to say it can't be done. We see it happening. But he says not to. Here Jesus is affirming the high view of marriage. As we look here at his intent, it's also important that we point out this as well. We mentioned this and just for the sake of a new audience, new hearers. There is no such thing of any other marriage in the sense of gay marriage or transsexual marriage or any other definition of marriage that you would, that you would come up with. It is simply a mirage. There's biblical marriage, and then there's just the illusions that we see today. What man has joined together, what God has joined together, let not man separates. And also, what God separates, let no man join together. There's another way of rendering it. As you see, God never permits a man and a man or a woman and a woman to come together 
in a marriage. That's like having two heads and no body, or two bodies and no head, in a literal rendering of the marriage metaphor. So we see this coming together, this forming together of a one flesh union, a new thing. This is how God defines marriage for us. Well, as we look into the Word of God, as we look here at the importance of marriage, Jesus places the emphasis on marriage and not on divorce. Does divorce exist? It does. Does divorce exist flippantly and rampantly? It does. Are there biblical grounds for divorce? There are. We'll touch on it and we'll place the emphasis where Jesus does, but we'll just say this. Understand this. God, as he says in his word in Malachi chapter 2, he hates divorce. And the reason he hates divorce is because marriage is so sacred and so precious. You did not hear me say God hates divorcees or those who have committed divorce. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm placing the emphasis on what Scripture says because marriage is so precious and because it is God's design, because He is the institutor and the creator of it. It is something that is so, so serious. So this is the emphasis of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if the disciples in verse 7 and following had not asked their follow-up questions, Jesus would have ended it right there. In fact, Luke in his gospel and Mark in his gospel don't give the exception clause that we see here in this passage. And the point I'm trying to make is, is that Jesus is placing the emphasis where God places the emphasis, and it's on the importance and the sacredness of marriage. Well, we come here to this passage, and we just take away before I move on. Again, I just want to say this. Is this my emphasis? Is this your emphasis when we give counsel to those who come to us? Because listen, people will. People know what Christians teach. People know what Christians believe. And you will have people who need counsel come to you. And, and they'll come to you, as many have come to me, and they'll describe some type of negative situation. And I don't mean in the worst senses of the term, but just difficulties of marriage. And one of the things I say, if I feel I can say, if I can say it, is, oh, you're describing for worse. And they'll say, well, what do you mean by that? And I'll say, well, remember, your marriage vows, you said for better or for worse. And what I hear you describing is, is the for worse part. And you say, well, I don't think that's funny. Well, I'm not trying to be funny. But yet many people in our day and age are flipping about marriage and quickly are looking for excuses on how to get out of their marriage. And so they're looking for the, they fall into the lie of marriage is about me. Marriage is about my fulfillment. Marriage is about all of my dreams and all of my desires. And when that becomes tested, and anything you hold dear will become tested at some point, but for better or for worse, it's a reminder to us that we are committed before the Lord. We've made this vow before the Lord for better or for worse. And if you say you believe this, all of these things, marriage and sexuality, biblical marriage, uh, the sexual issues that are on the front burner of today, just know this, you will be tested on it. It's coming. And you may say, well, LeGrand, you say that so authoritatively, but um, I haven't yet. Well, don't think it won't. It'll come. Satan and his plan and his control and his tactics is bringing this issue continuously on the front burner of almost the litmus test for almost everything. And if you've not faced this in the workplace, in the secular workplace, more than likely you will. Your position on these issues may cost you 
your job. You need to understand that. And I'm speaking more towards the sexual issue side and that which is mainline and accepted as mainstream perversion. But just know this, in counseling or in needs or those who love you and those who come to you, you need to know what God's Word says on this and need to know where you're at on this as we look into God's Word. Number one, the probing question. Number two, the plan for marriage that Jesus unveils and describes. But number three, the problem of the heart. Verse 7, and they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put, to put her away? No, it's just needed Paul's right there. They have it wrong. Now, we're not going to go back and read Deuteronomy 24. We read it last week extensively. But the Pharisees are coming with a faulty presupposition. They have a faulty presupposition that in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is commanding divorce. They ask this question because they believe Jesus now, they believe him to be at odds with Moses and to be at odds with the law. But the reality is they are the ones who've misinterpreted what Moses has, has taught. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses permits divorce because it's already happening. He regulates it. And so they take a concession, a concession or a permission, and they make it falsely, wrongly, a commandment. And we're not going to turn to Deuteronomy 24, but for sake of notes, if you're writing this down, the only thing that Moses commands in Deuteronomy 24 is that if a man divorces his wife and she remarries another, he is not allowed, he is commanded not to remarry her again. Many reasons for that. Protection for the woman, protection for the second marriage. And so they're taking that permission as a command. They're taking the hardness of heart. They're taking Genesis chapter 3, following Genesis chapter 1 and 2, as, as commanding language. And so Jesus looks at them, basically asking the question, do you understand what Deuteronomy 24 is doing? It is not instituting or commanding divorce. It is simply managing in this broken Genesis 3 fallen world. It's simply managing divorce. And friends, it's uncomfortable for us, but in this broken world, we see issues of sin. There were issues in the Old Testament of um, polygamy, slavery, and many other things that were not commanded but regulated because of the brokenness of this world and fallenness of man and sin, the effects of sin on the world today. So just to make sure we're clear, this is not what Jesus is saying. This is not, divorce is not what God established at the beginning. Divorce itself is not commanded. Divorce itself is only permitted under Keywords here, very certain circumstances. What was commanded in Deuteronomy 24 was not the remarrying of a divorced woman by the man who originally divorced her. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. Here is the root issue behind all of it in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Let's just hit pause right there. The phrase hardness of hearts in the scripture means a point of no return many times. It means there's no desire for repentance or renewal. It is bent on, the sinner is bent on just continuing in its hardened state of sin. Moses, because of the hardness, and he's speaking collectively of the corporate group of the children of Israel who practice this. There's a collective sense to this statement. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives 
But from the beginning, it was not so. This was not a creation norm. This was not a creation purpose. This was not God's intention in his created order of marriage. But because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave regulation to it. Verse 9, notice what he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So as we come to this passage, Jesus here gives very specific language to this idea of divorce and what happens to those who flippantly forsake the spouse of their youth. Notice the language that he uses, sexual immorality. This is a broad word. The Greek word is porneia, and its usage in other passages of Scripture refer to homosexuality, bestiality, and that type of thing. The idea is this broad sexual unfaithfulness. And I will not go into detail. We have a mixed audience here tonight in its usages. But you get the idea. It can include incest and many other sins. And the idea is this impenitent bentness on sin. No repentance. Continual practice. That's the idea. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 of a believing spouse being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse in a companion scripture that we will maybe, if we have time, refer to here towards the end of the message as being another thing that breaks the marriage bond and being a legitimate reason for divorce and remarriage. In both cases, the abandoned party would be free to remarry. Now, those are the only exceptions Scripture lays down. Jesus has already addressed this as we studied Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. And unless there has been an act that has broken the marriage such as these, you need to hear this carefully, divorce is not permitted. So what the Pharisees are taking as a commandment, Jesus is simply saying Moses only regulated and Permitted. And I want to hit pause here because this is difficult. There's just no way around it. Believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where the gospel must inform our lives. The gospel. What is that of a marriage between a man and a woman, but that of Christ and his church as we think about the marriage union? The gospel informs our views here. If you are a spouse who's been sinned against, If you are a spouse who comes to find out in some way that uh, you come to faith in Christ, as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the teaching of Scripture is that if you come to faith in Christ and you're a new believer in Christ, you automatically do not have a right to abandon, divorce your unbelieving spouse. And I'll touch more about that in just a moment. Here, if you are a husband or a wife who finds out that you've been sinned against through this broad word of sexual unfaithfulness, In fact, in Deuteronomy 24, it wasn't talking about adultery because in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, the the punishment for adultery was, was execution. So this is a broad word that's being used here, one that includes but is much broader than adultery here in this text. But if you are someone who has experienced it, this is where the gospel must inform our thinking, that there might be reconciliation that there might be forgiveness. The bent of a Christian who's been changed by the grace of God desires for a possible restoration. There's so many things I'm not saying, of course, with time and 
patience and with godly leadership, counseling and walking through the truth. No doubt, there's no one circumstance that you could compare to another circumstance. But simply, the bent of a believer who's been sinned against is one that desires, again, remember the context is that of forgiveness. The idea is, is forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation is not only the heart of God, it's the heart of genuine disciples who've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where there are cases of impenitent, hardened states of heart, and if you want to know what that looks like, we can talk afterward. I have no desire to wax eloquent about that here from the pulpit uh, this evening. We'll just simply say this, where divorce does take place, there's always scarring and brokenness that happens, even in legitimate cases for it. You can say it like this, in a divorce, no one wins. All are scarred and hurt. I've counseled with many who've experienced it for both legitimate reasons and not legitimate reasons, and that conclusion is the same. It's one of pain and heartache. It is never a happy option. It is always, you could say, the saddest option. Well, then that leads us to number four, the puzzlement of the disciples. Again, Jesus's bent is on this high view of marriage, the creation design of marriage. And here we really see the false thinking that the disciples have. In fact, some commentators say the disciples were influenced by the Rabbi Hillel in that broader, looser, more liberal view for divorce for anything than, than what maybe what we realize. And they are puzzled by what Jesus is saying. In other words, they've not heard this. His disciples said to him, verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, what well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, where God says, it is good for man not to be alone, we're wondering if that's the case based upon what you're teaching, Jesus. Or another way of answering or looking at what they're saying is, is this is impossible with men. This is hard. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying it is good to marry. Marriage is the good gift of God. The problem is not with the institution of marriage, of course, since it was marriage, since it was God's idea. In fact, everything that God does is good. The creative order in Genesis 1 and 2 is God created all these things. He said it is, it is good. The problem is not God's design. The problem is sin. And the problem is the broken world that all of us live in. In fact, verse 8, Jesus puts the, the thumb on the pressure point of the problem. The problem is our own hard hearts. Now, they respond with, if this is true, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 11, how he responds. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. That is an interesting statement. Now, he's not talking about what he's been teaching. He's talking about what they just said. This word accept means being able to make room for something, being able to make space for something. In other words, not everyone can handle this. Not everyone can get this. All cannot accept this saying. Now, he goes on to explain in verse 12 what he means by that. He said, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. One. And then there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, two. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's three. Three categories there. He who is able to accept it, 
let him accept it. Well, again, just in case we thought we were in unusual waters or tricky waters, here it gets even more interesting. What does he mean by eunuch? We see the word eunuch all throughout the Scriptures. Daniel was a eunuch. Some surmise Nehemiah to be a eunuch. I don't think he was. Oftentimes, men who served close to kings were made eunuchs so that they could, not, they could be singular in their focus. The natural drives and desires that would be there would be removed. If a eunuch or a man was placed over a king's harem, like what we saw, the mention of eunuchs again and again in the book of Esther, uh, they were made eunuchs so that the king did not have to worry about anything. So as Jesus introduces three different categories of eunuchs, the first one here, there are the eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. Just succinctly to put it, these are eunuchs who are not ruled by sexual desire. That might be through some physical deformity or lack. Those are sometimes the case. These are those who are born in that sense or in that way. It is a physiological problem. There's a second category here. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. These are those who are not ruled by sexual desires, but they've been castrated. They, there has been a physical operation that has caused that to happen. And then thirdly, a different category altogether, Jesus says this. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. These are those, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are those who give themselves over. We would call it singleness today. These are those who give themselves over with singular focus to serving God, to the advancement of the gospel, or serve Him in some particular way, and do not give way to sexual desires. They are content in their status that God has given to them. God has ordained this for them. They believe it to be so. Many believe this is Paul, as Paul describes his own service for Christ, not that he calls himself a eunuch, but as one, he describes his life for God as being singular in focus. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm noticing here in my notes, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. I did not put the verse, but I found it quickly in my text. Notice there with me, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. Paul says this, he says, For I wish that all men were even as I myself. And what is that? Unmarried. But that each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, to be clear, a eutych does not burn with passion. Here, what Paul is describing is those who are content with God's plan for their life, whether it's the widow or the widower or the single man or the single woman. They have a heart for the Lord. They feel like he has given them a calling or he has, by his sovereignty, allowed them to go through the, the natural things of life. Paul says, if you can be content with that, then do it for the sake of the kingdom. But if not, it is better to marry and follow God's plan for marriage. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And don't think I, I I'm just going to say this because I don't ever want to assume anything. There is no room for physical relations between a naturally born man and a naturally born woman outside of marriage, period. 
So this idea of being a eunuch, or it's unusual language, but this is language that Jesus uses, we would say being single today, purposefully single. Let's just admit the two parallel things. God has ordained marriage. It's good. It's right. It's beautiful. It's his gift, and it's normal for people to pursue. But we also do need to understand that God does place upon people the calling of singleness, and with that calling comes usually a particular bent and direction. And now I also need to hit pause here and address something else in our cultural day. And this is so hard because not every single person that you may know or that may come into Grace Church, and I'm not going to give examples, I'm just trying to make a point, uh, desires to, to be single. In other words, they've not intentionally delayed marriage because of immaturity, but yet many people in our society have. And so it's just a reminder for us to understand what is the biblical worldview of marriage, what is the biblical worldview of singleness and design? There are many who are single who would desire to be married, and yet the Lord has not made that happen. And they're seeking the Lord's mind and will on that. But I would be negligent as a pastor not to address the state of affairs today when we say our culture has made it normal to delay marriage until late. Uh, and I'm, you know, 30s, 40s, or whatever. And no matter what I say here, I'm going to step on somebody's toes. So just, it is what it is. If you need questions, just come talk to me afterwards. But friends, I want you to know that is not God's plan and God's design. And what I mean by this is immaturity for the sake of glorifying immaturity. In Scripture, there's no such thing as teenagers. It's either you are a child or you are, you are a little boy or you are a man. Or you are a little girl or you are a woman. There's immaturity and there's maturity. And all of us should mainstream and glorify in the sense of it is good and right for us to treat the boys of the church as young men and to affirm them and to praise them as they are growing up into that maturity. And the same thing for the young ladies. But what is not good, what is not biblical is the mainstreaming of immaturity. Now, I'm not saying everyone who finds himself in a certain age demographic is immature. So please don't hear it. I'm saying it in that way, but I would be negligent as a pastor not to address it because it's an issue today. Somebody could help me by saying amen somewhere, somewhere in there. Okay, well, I'm not going to... If you can't say amen, say ouch. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's a problem. And so it's just a reminder for us as a church. You may say, LeGrand, what is your point? Well, it's, it's, it's here. And so just as a church, as we, we think about shepherding those that God brings our way, what a joy this is, what a privilege this is to know and to come alongside uh, the young individuals that God will bring into our church, whether it be the children, to model them healthy biblical manhood and womanhood and marriages so that they could aspire, aspire to those very things. Notice what Paul goes on to say, verse 32 of chapter 7. He says, but I want you to be without care. That means free of concern. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. So for those singles who are single and, and they have those conversations, here, one thing that, that is good, if they say, I believe God's calling me to a specific focus and he's given me this grace and he's given me the gift to do that. Paul here, no matter if that's uncomfortable to you as a mom or a dad or a grandfather or a grandmother, Paul here legitimizes the, the category of singleness for the glory of God. And that's the key phrase, for the glory of God. There's a singularity of focus for his kingdom. He recognizes in verse 33 of this passage, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carries about, cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. 
But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Here Paul points to the very obvious duties and natural burdens. He's not speaking here as if this is a great disservice. He's just pointing to the facts of life. A a father who has a family has to provide for that family. And he can, yes, serve the Lord. It's not like those two things are in contradiction to each other. But his amount of time that he can devote to serving the kingdom is limited because of priorities that God has given to him. The same for a mother, the same for a wife. And so Paul recognizes that the purpose and the place of those who can be, as he describes, as he is. And God has obviously given Paul the gift of a singular focus, as we see Paul describe in many passages, think about Philippians 2 and 3, of pressing towards the prize, being a model for us of pursuing Christ. So as we look into the Word of God, as we think about what Paul is saying, as we think about eunuchs and the three categories of eunuchs that, that Jesus gives here, the idea here is that fornication is not permitted. It's not an option. And only those who be given the grace of God for singleness um, are those who should stay in that state instead of pursuing marriage. In fact, it would be better for those who do not have a biblical view of marriage, as we have seen, it would be better for them not to marry. But if you do marry with God's understanding of what marriage is, pursue it, protect it, live it, and ask for His grace to uphold it day after day after day. Now, I've got some concluding thoughts, some application points for us to ponder. And I've touched on this in the message, but this, the, gu- the, the guiding principle for all of us is the gospel. Is the gospel. In other words, you can say it like this. When we obey the light that we are given, God gives more light. For many of you, divorce may be in your past. I don't know everybody's story here, so I, I can promise you before the Lord, I'm not thinking of anyone or anything when I say this, but I want to tell you this, walk with God right where you meet Him. Many people have a past. We all have a past in some sense of sin and that type of thing. But as you think about your own marriages, your own history, your own life, walk with God right where you meet the truth. And when you find the truth and when you're exposed to the truth, bow to the truth. Embrace the truth obey the truth. Begin to live the truth wherever and whenever you find it. In other words, you can say it like this, for some of you, and you think about sins in your past, you couldn't live what you didn't know. Your blindness and your trespasses and sins, there were things that you were not aware of as where you are today. God has saved you in Christ. You've come to a full understanding of what is the biblical standard of Scripture. What does it teach about marriage and singleness and sexuality, all of those things, a very broad umbrella that Jesus is touching on here. Whenever the Word of God deals and calls out past sins and failures, we all understand it can be very, very painful. But when we come to the truth and bow to the truth, we receive His grace, as we saw this morning. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. It's the joy of knowing that Christ died for sin, even many of these sins. If you find this affecting you personally, let me just exhort you and encourage you. You must come and agree with what God's Word says. And when you do that, you receive His grace for where you are on your sanctification journey, even this very moment, even today. 
I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you still have your Bibles open like I do, it's open still in chapter 7. So just go back one chapter to verse 6. I mentioned this verse briefly last week, but I want to read it for us in our hearing tonight. As Paul is addressing the church at Corinth, I think we often think of the church and being a Christian as those who've always been perfect. (laughs) Sometimes we think like that. We think in false constructs. And I'm here to remind all of us, I'm not trying to minimize sin or make anybody feel comfortable and unconfessed sin. But I am trying to say this, is that there are no perfect homes, there are no perfect families, there are no perfect lives just broken ones who've been redeemed by God's grace. And I hope you hear the heart behind that. I'm not trying to give anyone an out that that is living in known sin. But at the same time, I want to encourage you what Paul says to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Notice what he says. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you do not be deceived? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I say this to say that regardless of your past and your history, all of us, who are walking the light, have a past that has been washed clean. If you find yourself there this evening, then I would just simply call you to come and review the gospel and the work of Christ in your life and on your behalf. He calls them new creatures in Christ. So I want to conclude with these points of application. If you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel. Every day, ask the Lord to turn the heart of your wife or your husband towards not only him, but towards you. Ask the Lord for grace to love them with a sacrificial love and take the responsibility that God has given to you to glorify Christ in your marriage. Again, if you are married, love your spouse in a way that portrays the gospel and ask the Lord for strength and grace to uphold that high view of marriage that Jesus shows here in our text. Wives, respect your husbands and honor Christ through the building up of your husband as the spiritual leader of your home. If you are single, you're hearing this message and you are single, ask the Lord for grace to maximize this unique season in what may ultimately be a life calling. Ask the Lord for grace to maximize this season of your life in the advancement of the gospel. This is where I think our thinking is often wrong. We think in constructs of secular and sacred. And what I'm constantly trying to remind all of us as a pastor is that all of us are called to advance the gospel with a singularity of focus. This is what a Christian is. It's not a matter of, well, I'm not a pastor on Sunday. I'm just the guy that goes into work on Monday. Well, listen, this is what a disciple is. All of us are called to do this. And if God's called you to a season of singleness, which may ultimately be a life of singleness, Ask Him for the grace to accept His calling and to have a singularity of focus to advance His kingdom, to advance the gospel in and through your life. Recognize that you will have opportunities that many would desire to have and yet cannot have. I regularly try to remind our single young men, we don't have as, you know, and single young ladies as they come, use this season of your life, which will more than likely be very temporary, 
Use it. Don't waste it. Redeem it for the glory of God. And you'll never regret that. Just giving it all to the Lord. Letting Him have some of the best years of your life. The best of your strength. As we all grow older, we're, we're experiencing it waning, right? We experience the frailty of life. There's so much for our young singles to do and to use for the kingdom of God. If you are in a situation to where you're struggling in your marriage and you're considering divorce, I would just simply call you again afresh and anew to remember the preciousness and the power of the gospel. If you lose gospel hope, you have no hope. If you lose the hope that the gospel brings, you have nothing. I have nothing. We have nothing. And I just want you to know this. There is nothing too hard for God. The gospel can change even the hardest of hard hearts. He can restore and reconcile things that we never thought He could restore and reconcile. Seek counsel. Be slow. Be patient. And examine your situation by the authority of God's Word. If you are divorced for a biblical reason and single... Rest in the gospel identity, rest in your singleness, and rest in the Lord's direction and purposes for your life. Again, I'm not thinking of anything specific or whatever, but in every church, in every home, in every family, these are individuals who are sitting in the pews who hear the word of God. If this is you, ask the Lord for direction, guidance, and ask that He give you grace if it is His purposes for you to remain single. I have a very dear friend who I've just met in the last season of my life last year and he finds himself in this situation and he has said this that I pray every day that God will bring my wife back to me he's in a situation where she has left and he says many ask him it's almost annoying they ask him why why don't you date why don't you do something different and he just says this because of my hope in the gospel my hope that God will restore my marriage and uh, I try to encourage him I try to strengthen him in that if he doesn't and he leads you to remarry, pray that the power of the gospel will be afresh and anew displayed in your life. If you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, repent and rely on the gospel to glorify God in your singleness. Repent both of your sin to God and to your former spouse. Then let the gospel of Christ give you great hope for a life that thrives in the advancement of the gospel. One final application. If you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and remarried, repent and reflect upon the gospel in your current marriage. Nowhere in Scripture that do we find indicates that you should break another covenant marriage by divorcing again. Instead, repent and receive the forgiveness of God in Christ. Instead, Scripture encourages you to focus on magnifying Christ in the marriage that you have now by the power of of the gospel. Again, church, walk with God right where you meet his truth. And where you meet his truth and encounter God's word, may the default position of every single one of us be what the psalmist describes in Psalm 119, verse 34. Lord, teach me your law, teach me your truth, and I will give you this promise. I'll obey it with all of my heart. May we obey the light that God has given to us, May we have a renewed sense of understanding what His purposes are, particularly in singleness and in marriage and in divorce. And may the Lord give grace and help in our time of need. Now, I have no doubt that I, some of you probably have some questions about something I, I either said or didn't say. 
I, I'm more than available to counsel or to guide or try to clarify or to explain to you anything that I can. So I'll be available to you following uh, the service here this evening. Let's give thanks to the Lord for just a wonderful, sweet day in his house uh, with his people. Mike Hughes, do you mind just to stand right where you are and just ask a closing prayer? Just ask the Lord to bless the ministry of the word. And there's a lot of word that's been ministered today. Let's just mix it up a little bit, brother, if you will. Thank you for this time passed in the Spend it in the